Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 13. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. For alas, and alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it might not, may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulations as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days... After the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. The grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Pray with me. Merciful God in heaven, we give you thanks that we get to come before your word. Your word which teaches us and exhorts us and encourages us and challenges us along the way. Be present with us by the power of your spirit. Speak to us. We are needy people needing the bread that comes from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, the late uh, philosopher, critical scholar, intellectual Bertrand Russell once wrote an essay called Why I Am Not a Christian. And central to his reasonings for why he uh, was not a Christian was uh, a problem that he had with the Olivet Discourse, Mark 13, which we're in again this morning. And the, the, the problem that he had with this discourse uh, that, we, that we just read about is that even though Jesus' prophecies about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which he's talking about here, were remarkably accurate, and that Jerusalem did fall and the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, uh, his prophecy about his, himself coming on the clouds within that generation didn't happen, he would argue. Right, Jesus says in verse 30, uh, which is after the section we read, that, that this generation will not pass away until all these things, all these things that he's been talking about in this section, have come to pass. And uh, he's saying, listen, that this generation is going to see this. And this is not the only time Jesus says this in this kind of section of Scripture, but he said it earlier in chapter 9 and in Matthew's account. He says it in the chapter right before. This generation is on his mind. This generation is going to see these things that he's talking about. But Jesus, according to Bertrand Russell and many others, uh, would say that he didn't come in clouds of glory. These other things he talked about happened, but he never did come on clouds of glory. So for him and for many popular atheists today, this is kind of a popular atheist uh, argument against Jesus in scripture. But for them, this ruins both the credibility of Jesus and the credibility of scripture. 
Which makes sense, right? Jesus can't be a prophet, and he certainly can't be God if the things that he says are gonna happen don't actually happen. And while I think it's easy for us sitting in this particular room to dismiss this line of thinking and these challenges against Jesus and against scripture, one commentator, R.C. Sproul, actually points out that we're wrong to quickly dismiss these arguments. Because he says this isn't a small problem. Not because there isn't a good answer to this problem or we don't have a solution, but because the problem is actually very weighty. And it's not easily solved or reconciled. Because Bertrand Russell's question about who Jesus is isn't just a modern question that we struggle with. Well, who is this Jesus that we follow? Um, But it was essential to the people of this day and time. In fact, we're gonna find just after this, this question is what leads many to kill Jesus because they don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. And this is the question of questions, right? Who is Jesus? Was Jesus actually the Messiah he claimed to be? Was he actually the, the prophet he claimed to be? And if so, these things that he said would happen in this generation had to have happened like he said they would. Otherwise, he is no different than the other false messiahs that he says will come in his name and lead people astray. So we have before us the question of questions. Who is Jesus? Is Jesus truly the Messiah? Is he God in flesh coming to rescue his people? Or is he just another in a long line of false prophets, false messiahs who claim things, but they can't uh, uphold their word. Their, their word doesn't come to, 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 to uh, life. And as we look at this Olivet Discourse more closely, examining what Jesus means here when he says these things, I think what we're gonna find is the answer to that question of just who, who is Jesus? And we're going to find the vindication of Christ, that he is exactly who he said he was. And perhaps more than just seeing the, the vindication of Jesus, what we're going to find in this text is the vindication of those who follow him too, right? That those who endured to the end did not do so in vain, and that we too who endure uh, and who believe in the midst of dark times don't do so in vain, because if Christ is vindicated as the true Messiah, then those who follow him are vindicated as his true people, and so as we consider this, this idea of the vindication of Christ this morning, that he is who he claimed to be, we're going to find he is vindicated actually in the judgment that comes against Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. And I think there's, there's two parts to this vindication we're going to find here this morning. It begins with the, the, the signs of the judgment to come, which are the signs that right, lead up to the judgment actually happening. And secondly, the days of judgment, which are things that actually happen when judgment comes to pass. And, and I think... Both movements show us who Jesus is. So first, the signs of judgment. The signs of the judgment. Now, if you remember, for those who were here last week, if you weren't here last week, I, this is one of the few times I'm going to encourage you to maybe listen to it because what I said last week at the beginning of Mark 13 helps set up some of the things I'm talking about this morning. But last week we talked about some of the things that would happen to them uh, before this time that shouldn't surprise them. They were, they were called birthing pains, right? Wars and rumors of war and, and certain tribulations that would come. Uh, and in these things, these actually were not signs that the things were, uh, that the fall of the temple was about to happen, but these were, these were false signs. Um, in those, the time of judgment against the temple, Jerusalem was still a ways off. And in uh, this morning, we find out what the signs are that actually tell the people that this judgment is imminent. That this judgment is going to happen at any, at any time. And when they see these things, that they need to act lest they all die. And we see this begin here in verse 14. 
says this, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Jerusalem flee to the mountains. So the, the first sign that tells the people that the destruction of Jerusalem and everything that's been prophesied is, is imminent, right? That the stones will be overturned like Jesus said would happen in verse two of this section is the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. Let the reader understand. What in the world does that mean? Well, first of all, we have to understand this is a reference to the, the prophet, uh, of prophecies of Daniel. Right, and the Gospel of Matthew actually makes this connection uh, much more clear for us in Matthew 24. But this is a reference to the prophecies in Daniel chapter 11. And in Daniel, in, in Daniel uh, he was in exile in Babylon and he prophesied about the coming day when the, the temple uh, of Jerusalem would be desecrated, when regular burnt offerings will cease and when pagan elements will be introduced into worship. And he's saying this is the abomination, this is the desolation of temple worship. And Jesus is saying, this is the sign. When you see this happen, pagan things happen in the place of worship. The end is near. Let the reader understand. You know, and even this phrase, let the reader understand. You know, throughout Mark, um, Jesus, when he speaks about the future of his death and resurrection, which he's predicted several times already up until this moment, the disciples actually struggle to understand. They don't understand what Jesus is talking about. And here, we, you know, we find this, this threefold combination of, of seeing, the section before, we talked about seeing, and then we see hearing. When you, when you hear of these things, when you see of these things, understand, it's, it, he's echoing actually Isaiah 6, 9, when it says they hear and, 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 they, and they see, but they don't understand. Jesus is saying, when you see and you hear these things, you must understand. See, hear, be awake. Because if you aren't, if you don't understand, you will be swept up in the coming judgment. You won't see these signs and be able to flee. And since Jesus claims that this would happen within their generation, the question is, well, when did this actually happen? When did the abomination of desolation happen? Right, where Jesus' prophetic powers correct that this sign of the coming judgment in 70 AD happened. Well, and there's actually, I think, uh, people comment uh, three different candidates for, that could qualify for these kind of abominations historically, but I think one of these is most likely. The first one that people talk point to is, is um, uh, Emperor Gaius in 40 AD who was erecting a statue and was gonna attempt to bring it into the temple, but it actually never made it all the way into the temple. Uh, the, so I don't think that's the abomination of desolation that's being talked about too. Also what happened in 40 AD, which is 30 years before the fall of the temple, so the timeline doesn't really work. Others would say, well, maybe Titus, who led the army against Jerusalem and later became emperor of Rome in 70 AD, he actually broke the walls of the city, went to the temple, and, and made sacrifices to other gods, and, which seems like a pretty good candidate for the abomination of desolation happening here. But the problem with this being the abomination of desolation is that happened in 70 AD, which is already too late. That's when the walls fell um, and they wouldn't have had time to escape the city because they, Romans had soldiers up in the mountains that would have caught anybody fleeing from the city. So it's not likely that, um, th that that's when it happened. I think that the real desecration of the temple um, actually didn't come from those on the outside, but actually from the people on the inside. And in 67 AD, Jewish zealots occupied the temple. They took out the high priest. They committed what one witness called countless abominations. 
And it, it happened by leaders who stood in the temple and stained it with blood. Uh, and they ceased the regular burnt offerings that were happening in the temple. And this made the temple an abomination. It's a lot of information, but ultimately what this abomination of desolation is a sign of, it's a sign of the final straw of Israel's worship of false gods. Right, the Jerusalem and its temple, which are supposed to be the center place of their, of their world, of their culture, of their worship, have become defunct. They have become an abomination desecrating the temple and its worship. To borrow from some Old Testament, Old Testament judgment narratives, they have become like the other nations. Then they were no longer set apart, they were no longer holy, they were just like every other nation, pursuing their own power, their own glory, their own kingdom's advancement. And when the disciples saw this moment happening, the abomination happening in the temple, this was their sign that it was time to run. Destruction was imminent, so much so that they wouldn't even have time to prepare for their coming flame. They just needed to go wherever they were in haste. And this is what you see beginning in the end of verse 14. It says, then let those who are in judgment in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Right? When they see this abomination, when they see the people of God breaking the worship of Yahweh, they're told, destruction is imminent, you must flee. You don't have time to grab anything, you just need to run into the mountains. You know, and what's interesting about this, this call for these people to run into the mountains is that this is actually counterintuitive to the time. And this time, when you were being invaded by outside nations, actually the city was the place you wanted to run. Think about it. If you're outside the city, you're a farmer, you're, you're anywhere outside the city walls, where's the safest place to be if invasion's coming? Well, inside the city, right? Protected by the, by the walls that would, that would protect from outside invasions. And so uh, Jesus is telling them to leave the safety of the city is him saying, listen, the city is not the safe place. This place is not going to stand. Your only hope to survive this coming tribulation is to flee to the mountains. Let me tell you, the, the tribulations that came here were not light. And verse 19 alludes to this. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. You know, uh, one of the great Jewish historians, Josephus, who we learn a lot of this moment from, uh, records this, that during the siege of the city, before they broke into the walls, there was upwards of 500 Jews being crucified each day. So many Jewish people were being crucified each day that they ran out of trees and wood to build crosses. They starved the city so much, depleting its resources, that it's reported that mothers ate their own children. Friends, this was no small tribulation. This was the great tribulation. And it's reported that in this city, upwards of 1.1 million Jews were brutally murdered. Not to mention the various uprisings that happened in the countryside in this time where people pursued and killed Jews. Witnesses saying Jews were being hunted and murdered in the streets. This was no small amount of tribulation. This was no small amount of upheaval. This is a violent affair. The fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple was this tribulation that is being spoken of. You know, for some interesting reading later in your Sunday afternoon, I encourage you to read Revelation 12 to 17 because that part of Revelation is actually talking about the fall of Jerusalem here that we're reading about. And it was brutal. 
And although this was so brutal, what's amazing is this, that the Christians of the time actually listened to the words of Jesus. They did indeed hear and see and understand what Jesus was saying because they fled the city before this event happened. And they were preserved in the siege of Jerusalem. It's, it's amazing. This happened. And in this, you begin to see the vindication of Christ, right? The abomination of desolation did come and stand in the holy places, desecrating it. The great tribulation did fall upon the city as like they've never seen before. His people did flee and he preserved his people, his elect, it says, which is a New Testament way of talking about the people of God. He preserved them and he judged those who opposed them. So in these signs that we see here, that the come, in, the, in the coming destruction of Jerusalem, we see Jesus' prophecy coming to pass. The seeds leading up to the fall of Jerusalem happened. Jesus Christ is vindicated. But what about this next part of the text? What about the coming of the Son of Man on clouds and glory? I'm sure accepting that everything up until verse 24 has already happened in history is not that much of a stretch to believe. Because of the historical records we have, uh, we can see that it happened. But verse 24 is where things get a little interesting. And so, you know, we've seen the signs of judgment beginning to vindicate Jesus, that he is, is indeed the long-awaited Messiah, the one true prophet. And now we're going to see how the days of judgment do this as well. The days of judgment. Right up until now, we've talked about the coming days that's going to lead up to this final destruction. But what happened when the temple and the city actually fall. And I think there's, there's two things we're gonna see in the days of judgment that vindicate Jesus. First, we're gonna see the fall of the world. And second, we're gonna see the rise of Jesus. The fall of the world and the rise of Jesus. So first, the, the fall of the world, we begin to see this in verse 24. It says this, but in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heaven will be shaken. What's being described here in these moments is the, the death of a, of a universe, right? Lights falling out of the sky, the fall of the temple in Jerusalem, he's telling us, are going to be cosmic falls. That is what Jesus is saying. And to understand this, we have to both understand biblical prophecy and understand how the Bible views Jerusalem. Let me read you this from Isaiah 13. This is speaking about the judgment and the fall of Babylon, which is interesting because Daniel, who's quoted heavily here, is also talking about the fall of Babylon. We read this in Isaiah 13. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light the sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil. There's an interesting language here. It's very much the same language that Mark is using here that Jesus is saying, right? Whenever a great power dies, it is like a world dying. Babylon's fall was as, as if the light of the world was, went out. But more than the fall of Babylon, Jerusalem's fall is the fall of an entire world. Not just one part of it or one large part of it, because the Bible speaks about Jerusalem as being the great city. We see this in Revelation 11 and Revelation 16. That it's talked about the kingdom that reigns over the kings of the earth. Revelation 17 even calls Jerusalem Babylon the great. Right? Jerusalem is that great power that reigns over the world. 
And she has become the false king of kings that Jesus overthrows. And the death of her is the death of the world as we know it. We talked a lot about that last week. And here's the final aspect of that, that the world is dying as Jerusalem dies. This happens after the tribulations, after the suffering. We find this final scene, the death of a world. A judgment has come to pass. The temple is done. Jerusalem is the, the center of the world. The universe, is, the light has gone out. The, the age has died. Friends, this is the great apocalypse. You, we often think rightly about the apocalypse as being the end of the world. I just think we, we, we typically wrongly apply it to some future of end of ours. But this is the great apocalypse that the Bible t- often talks about. This was the end of the world. The, the days of judgment bringing an end to an age. The age of Jerusalem and its temple worship are over. Make no mistake, this is the end of an age. This is the end of the world as they knew it. They are done. No more will they play a central part in the grand redemptive story. A new age is coming, a new world, a new king is enthroned, a new world is being birthed. And out of the death of one world, what we find is the rise of Christ. All right, this is the second aspect we see here is the days of judgment is the rise of Christ. As one world dies, another rises in its place and Jesus is enthroned as her king. And this is what's happening here in verses 26 to 27. It says this, and then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. All right, this is where we have to be careful readers of scripture careful not to import too much of ourselves and what we assume to be true about this text into the text. First of all, again, this is a reference to Daniel chapter seven, 13 through 14, this is what Daniel seven says. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. You know, what's interesting to note about Jesus' coming here in Daniel 7 to the, to the ancient of days is his coming is not coming to earth. Uh, but he's actually leaving earth. His coming is coming to heaven, to where the Ancient of Days is, to be enthroned with great power and glory, to establish his kingdom that shall not be destroyed. You know, when we read verse 26, it's easy to assume that this coming here means his coming to earth. But in the context of Daniel 7, that's actually not true. His coming here is not to earth, but his coming is to be enthroned in heaven, in power, and in glory. Right? Jesus prophesies that there will be a sign that the Son of Man has indeed ascended to receive all power and glory. There, there will be a sign that he is enthroned as the king, that he's the king of kings coming to establish a new age. And that sign is the fall of Jerusalem, right? The destruction of the city and the temple is the great demonstration that all authority and power has been given into the hands of the Son of Man. This here is the great vindication of Christ, that he is exactly who he said he was. But you might protest, what about this coming on the clouds business here? Again, this language that Mark is, is leaning on is heavenly from prophetic language in the Old Testament. And we have to understand this through the lens of Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture for us. Often when God comes to judge nations, it says that he comes on clouds. 
Jeremiah 4.13 says this, Behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind, his horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. This is part of the metaphor that prophets talk about, right? That the clouds of judgment block out the stars and the lights in the heavens. Right? The Son of Man coming in power and glory in the clouds. This is him coming as the judge, to judge against Jerusalem. And this act itself is an act of enthronement of power, that he is the king, that he can actually pass judgment. And his ascension, right, in Acts chapter 1, begins this movement as he ascends up to heavens in, in clouds and glory. And, and this moment is a sign that he actually has indeed taken dominion over all creation, over the earth, as Daniel 7 has prophesied. Right, in, the, in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, he is exercising his power and his glory over his people. And it's in these final days of judgment, we find Jesus vindicated. That Jesus is indeed the true prophet and the last prophet. And his prophetic word here happened in real time, in real space. And this shows us just how powerful he is. That he is not just any other prophet that's come speaking the words of God, but he actually is the word of God in flesh. He is the one true prophet, the one true king. Worlds may come and go, but he is forever. And this Jesus, this word is faithful to his word and his people. You know, when we think about judgment narratives, they're always a little bit scary for us. And rightly so. The, the days of the Lord, when, when the, you know, the Bible talks about, you know, we, we, we long for the days of the Lord to happen. The days of the Lord are always days that bring about judgment. And that's scary for us. But the thing we have to remember is they don't just bring about judgment. In the Old Testament, judgment is always actually paired with restoration. Jesus doesn't just judge and leave things in rambles and then get out, but he judges and then he restores. He judges, he tears down and then he builds new. Jesus doesn't just judge and leave us to ruins, but he judges us and he builds us new. Jesus's life follows this pattern too of judgment and restoration, right? He himself was judged. He was the stone that the builders rejected. He, in some ways, is, a, is another type of abomination, of, of desolation, standing where he ought not to be as he was put on the cross, even though he was indeed the son of man. Yet through his dying, we find his rising. Right? His death begets his resurrection and ascension and enthronement in heaven. Judgment against him brings about the restoration of all creation, that our judgment was placed on him. Jesus is faithful to his word and his people and he is vindicated in this moment and as he is vindicated in this moment, so are we. Followers of Jesus, the risen one. It is not a foolish endeavor. It is not just merely wishful thinking but we follow him because he is true, because he's real, because he is who he said he was and he is risen and as he is risen, so we rise with him. So questions, what do we do with all this information here. What do we do with this moment in history? Well, I think first we look at it and we ought to marvel that Jesus is the one true God, that he is the one enthroned in heaven, that he is the one that's building and bringing his kingdom to bear on earth as it is in heaven. Our first task is to believe, to marvel. That we don't have to live in fear of future days, but we can have confidence in Christ that he is the true, that he is the last prophet and secondly in this Jesus actually invites you and I into his work 
Right here at the end, he talks about the angels that are sent out to gather his people from the four winds, from the ends of the earth. Angels is a word that means messengers, and you and I are now the messengers that he sends out into the world to gather the elect, to gather his people that are scattered around the earth. Right, the living stones that together are building God's kingdom, building upon Christ our great cornerstone. Finally, in this, Jesus becomes our pattern for our life. Right, as Jesus had to suffer to obtain glory, so, so too we may suffer to obtain glory, but our suffering is just for a little while. Glory and vindication in our king is forever because he and his kingdom are forever. May we rest in these great truths that Jesus is exactly who he said he was, that our worship is not in vain. And may we hold fast and endure until the end, until that glorious day when heaven and earth are one. Pray with me. Merciful God in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. Your word that shows us exactly who you are. May we be a people who hear, may we be a people who believe, who are transformed by your word and sent out as your messengers to the ends of the earth, wherever you have called us. May we be a witness and a testimony to you. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.